Father God, what a beautiful day that you have given us. It's a day to rejoice in, and let us be glad, Heavenly Father. And, and I pray as we are studying First uh, Peter, Heavenly Father, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And uh, anything that's said here this morning, discussed, uh, Lord, may it be according to your word, and may it bring glory to your name. Uh, be with Pastor Farrell as he's preaching at this time, Heavenly Father. Uh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit be with him also, and be with all those listening to your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, two lessons passed. I talked about the bad news, which is the persecution of the church. Last Sunday, I started with the good news, and we're going to continue that this morning. So if you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Going to look at verses 1 and 2. All right, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to do a little bit of review from last week, so it has set us up for where we are today. Uh, first of all, a reminder, this is Peter the Apostle. All right. Um, who's he writing to? Churches in Pontus and Galatia. Uh, you can see up here at the top, Bithynia, Pontus is up there, Galatia, Cappadocia, and then Asia. You can see that's a pretty large area, and it's a large area that tells us that the persecution is going to be hitting a pretty large place. So that's who he's writing to, the church is there. The purpose of his writing. If you turn to uh, chapter 5, verse 12 of 1 Peter. Chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. The purpose of writing this letter is so that the Christians would stand firm in the time of persecution that they are going through or will be going through. Well, Peter wrote a letter to exiles in order to prepare them for the fiery trials that they're about to, about to uh, experience. Some have already experienced. Uh, the overall outline, if you will, of First Peter, uh, many ways you can look at it. <clears throat> First of all, you can say uh, verses uh, chapter 1, 3 through 2.10 talks about their great salvation. Yeah, Don. I, I kicked you off. I don't know. If oh, my, 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 my. Okay. You know, I didn't have this trouble last week. Okay, 
know some of these some of these um, doctrines and 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 truth uh, that we read it's uh, it's beyond my mind my thinking to reason out uh, and to reconcile John 3:16 with Ephesians 1 4 the, the, to me uh, in my finite mind it is on uh, opposites to what what I would uh, come up with and um, and I don't know whether where the uh, meeting place is, where, where, where it comes together. And, and I heard uh, Pastor Pearl said he could not reconcile either. Um, so um, this is God speaking and speaking to us uh, and, and we, we take it by faith though we cannot digest it completely. Okay, and uh I, be, I believe you're absolutely right in that. We can't digest it completely. Uh, what I hope for us to do, and you're talking about election, predestination, I hope for us to digest everything that the Bible makes clear. That's what I want us to see. What does the Bible make clear? Okay? You say reason and reconcile. Yeah, there's a lot we can't reconcile in, in our minds, but what, what is the Bible clear about? What can we say, yes, I believe this. I may not understand this, but at least I know and I believe this part right here. Uh, that's, that's one of the goals I have for us as we're, we're going through the beginning part of, of First Peter. Okay, uh, how we can look at this book is, first of all, chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about their, Peter talks about their great salvation. Actually, it begins in verse 1. Okay, of chapter one, but their great salvation. It's going to be doctrine. It's going to be theology. It's going to be truth, as we often see in the epistles, beginning with theology and then going to application. Because it talks about doctrine and theology, I'm going to be um, taking us through a lot of scriptures. Have patience with me. But when you talk about doctrine and theology, you don't want to talk about just what Peter says. You want to talk about what does the Bible say, okay, and agrees with Peter. Uh, chapter 2, 11 through chapter 4, verse 6 is going to talk about the Christian's example before men or living in a fallen, antagonistic world, all right? As a result of the persecution that's coming, how should they live their lives, that's chapter 2, 11 through 4, 6. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 7 through 5, 11 talks about their great shepherd is going to return someday. Or we could call it conduct as members of Christ's church. Peter's very first encouragement, though, comes with reminding them of their heavenly origin. And I want you to, to really take this to heart because actually in in uh, Daniel chapter 7, which pastor's going to be preaching up, that talks about our future reward. It talks about the future heavenly kingdom. Um, if you look in chapter 1, uh, your version may say those who are elect exiles or to those who reside as strangers and later on who are chosen. That's the good news right there. 
it's a reminder that they are exiles according to their earthly geography, but they are also exiles from their spiritual realm. Folks, we are exiles. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world. You are not of the world. You are not of the world, Jesus said. Get that. You are not of the world. So often we see ourselves as of this world. We see ourselves as, I am a father, I'm a husband, I'm an American, you know. We see ourselves in roles in this world and everything. But Jesus said, you are not of this world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. We are not of this world. We are, our home is in heaven. Okay? And as I'm, we're going to see later on, when God chose you, he didn't choose you just to be saved and walk this earth. He chose you to be in heaven. That's what he chose you for. That was God's plan. God's plan was not just for us to be walking this earth now as Christians and getting a little bit better and better and more sanctified and more sanctified. When God chose us, he saw us in heaven, eternal with him forever. That's his plan. That's 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 what was on his mind, if you will. I reminded you last week about a writer who wrote a, a, a letter to Diognetus, and this is back in the second century, and, and this is what he had to say. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens, And put up with everything as foreigners. Folks, that's what we do. We take part as citizens. We vote. We do things as citizens that citizens ought to do. But we put up with everything else that's going on. Because we're foreigners here. This This is not our earth. This is not our place. We're foreigners. Every foreign land is a Christian's home. And every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. I got thinking about this. Uh, Michael and Mei Mei and family, they went to China. Okay? They are not Christians living in China in a foreign land. They were living in a foreign land when they were living here. So they just changed places for a while, if you will. 
Paul wrote to the Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our eternal citizenship. Yeah, we, we have a temporary citizenship here, but that's temporary. And even that citizenship, we're foreigners in that citizenship. The very first truth that Peter gives to prepare and encourage these Christians and to us that our home is in heaven and we are temporarily on terra firma in these bodies. So what Peter begins with is what is your mindset? Let me give you the right mindset so that when persecution comes, your mind is already set on the things that it ought to be set on. Paul wrote to the Colossians, set your mind on what? Things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a good question for you. How much time on your mind is set on things happening on this earth and not on things that are above? What is your mind set on? Now the listeners that Peter is writing to, they already know the bad news. So he begins with the good news. Don't escape the encouraging description that Peter is giving to his listeners. The description of who they are, if you will. You know, I can't help but think that Peter kind of summarized his response to the coming persecutions. His response to what is going on by one doctrinal truth. And he hits it right in the very beginning and he sets the tone for his whole letter. This doctrinal truth is the basis for everything else that he's going to say throughout the rest of the letter. To those who are elect exiles, or in another version, um, it might say, to those who reside as strangers who are chosen. This doctrine right here, this doctrine that we are elect or that we are chosen, this is how Peter establishes if you will, the foundation for what he's going to say. He repeats it again. Look in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, you are a chosen people. Nowhere else in ancient Jewish or Christian literature or writings do we find the two terms used together like this, elect exiles or strangers who are chosen. The most important thing for the hearers of Peter's epistle is their relationship to their heavenly kingdom, not this earth. Not this earth. Now, the the doctrine of election, as Ashton has already hinted at, is probably one of the most important doctrines, eclipsed only by the salvation doctrines, but it's one that's going to be fraught with misunderstandings or um, just not being able to grasp 
some things. Because of this, because it's so important, all right, um, if you have any questions, ask them. What I may do is wait until next Sunday to answer all the different questions that might come up from this doctrine. But it is important, as Peter is saying to these folks, it's important for them to know this doctrine. It's important for them to believe this doctrine. Well, it's the same thing for us. Should we face persecution or should we help those facing persecution we better be settled on one very important doctrine. That's the doctrine of a election or also called predestination. So what is election? All right, one definition by Wayne Grudem. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign pleasure. Now that automatically might create some questions in your mind is what about the people he doesn't choose? Okay. Uh, MacArthur and uh, Mayhew define it like this. It's the decree of election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves but solely because of the good pleasure of his will to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. Notice how he puts that there. The blessings of eternal life. That's what election is all about. So, God chose... God chose before time began. And I say time began at creation, okay? So even before creation, all right, God chose those whom he would save. You were not even, you were not even close to being created yet. Election then is rooted in the doctrines of the sovereignty and the, and the providence of God. Now, why is election really so important for us to understand and believe? Well, election is included in the logical sequence of salvation. It's included in the sequence of salvation. So if you're going to really understand what salvation is, you need to understand election or being chosen. If God made a decision, if he chooses who he will save, it means that he also will give an effectual call. An effectual call is a call that actually has an effect, if you will. It has an effect on the people that the call goes to. And whoever receives the effectual call will respond to it. And ultimately, this is important, if God chooses to save there is nothing to stop it or reverse it. If God has chosen you for salvation, you can't stop it. All right? You can't even stop it if you've been chosen by God. God's choice to, to save is a choice to make that individual, and here's the important part of it, a part of his eternal kingdom. 
when God made the choice, God's choice for Jean and Doris and Don was to make them a part of his eternal kingdom. That was his choice. Before creation, God saw his elect individuals as members of his kingdom in heaven. His choice guarantees that end result. Remember uh, what Jesus said in John, verse 19, chapter 15. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but what? I chose you out of the world. Now stop and think about that. God saw in eternity past that you were going to be a part of this world. You were going to be born into this world. But he made a decision to choose you out of the world. To choose you and say, you're a part of my kingdom. A part of my eternal kingdom. And since God has chosen the redeemed, it has everything to do with how the Christian lives his or her life. Now listen to that. Because God made the choice, because of what God has done, it has everything to do with how we live our lives on this earth. Makes this a very important doctrine. So Peter's epistle, it's not going to talk about our response to stop or to avoid persecution, but how we live our lives as chosen people. Um... It's how our, actually, when you read 1 Peter, it's a good epistle on how you live your life as a chosen person, whether you're going through persecution or not, or whether you're going through difficult times, or if everything is just handy-dandy, couldn't be any better, it still is epistle on how do we live our lives because we are chosen people. Now, as I said, it's a doctrine. Uh, as Ashton said, where we're going to find a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of controversy, if you will. It's controversial today, interestingly enough, but apparently it was not controversial during the time of the apostles. Today we have problems because we attempt to explain God's choosing. And that even may generate some some questions. But apparently... There was not much confusion or misunderstanding in the early church because Peter, like Jesus and Paul, did not take a lot of ink to explain this doctrine when it was mentioned. If you will notice, Peter just comes out, he uses the words, he doesn't explain how God chooses, he doesn't explain whatever misunderstandings it is because at that time it was just believed And that was it. It is often seen in the Bible as it is. A truth that the believers did not question. Now, notice how Peter uses it without explanation or discussion of the questions that the doctrine might raise. To encourage his listeners, though, even more, he goes on to show... And this is what we're going to be looking at today. The source of election, the sphere or the spirit of election, the sequel of election, and the security 
of election. Before we look at those, though, I would like to remind you how this doctrine is clearly taught in the Bible. When you go, you're going to find it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The decree of election is part of God's eternal decrees, which are unconditional, immutable, means unchangeable, efficacious, means they will do what God wants them to do, and they're exhaustive. Everywhere that God chooses, that's going to happen. Now, the word elect itself is used in the passive. And a passive of a verb means what? It's what God does to somebody. The passive is not what I do. I am elect. But it's not because of something I do. It's something somebody else is doing to me. In this case, of course, it's God. Now, the concept of God choosing people begins in the Old Testament. Specifically, with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 Moses wrote for you are a holy people to the Lord your God the Lord your God has what chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples on the earth who are on the face of the earth God has chosen you okay now why did God chose Israel in verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not make you his beloved nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose to put his love on those peoples. And why? He chose to love them. That was God's choice. You know, Jesus made many clear and unapologetic references to his chosen people, which is the church. Let's look at a few of those. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right? And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless God the Father draws him to the Lord. And in John 13, 18, Jesus said, I am not speaking about all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen. Jesus speaking during the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. Now he's talking about uh, the end times. He's talking about the tribulation, the days of the tribulation. If God had not cut them short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, even those who have been chosen by God for salvation. Verse 31, 
and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, and it's going to be exciting when, when uh, Pastor Farrell gets to um, these chapters. Uh, he's going to be going over this again. Speaking of whom here? Speaking of the twins. Jacob and Esau, right? Speaking of Jacob and Esau. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, according to his election, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God's choice. Uh, Luke, writing in Acts, uh, talking about uh, a great amount of people being saved. Verses 13, or chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. How did they understand it? And all who had been appointed, all who had been elected, all who had been chosen to eternal life believed. Be they believed why? Not because they were so good, but because they had been appointed to eternal life. And Paul writes in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, Just as he chose us in him when, before the foundation of the world, that we would what? Be holy and blameless before him. When are we going to be completely holy and blameless? When we get to heaven. Right, Doris, when we get to heaven. In love, God did what? He predestined us. See, he chose us. All right, he chose us. Then he predestined us, which means since he chose us, he made a plan that his choice was going to stand. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, and which he favored us in the beloved. Now Paul gives a little hint there of why did God choose us? What did he choose us for? To the praise of his glory. To the praise, because I didn't do anything to make myself worthy to be in his kingdom. So he wasn't rewarding me for anything. But it's his choice for his glory, ultimately for God's glory. Now, a pastor taught not long ago in the book of Revelation, and if you remember, he mentioned the Lamb's book of life. Remember the Lamb's book of life? What's the Lamb's book of life? It has a list of what? All right, names of those who would believe. All right, now... I remember as a new Christian, I used to get excited about that song. There's a new name written down in glory. And what, Ashton? And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. A new name written down in glory. And I understood that to mean the day I got saved 
was the day my name got written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay? People get saved, and then what happens? St. Peter takes his pen and writes your name in the Book of Life. There. Because you made a decision, now you're going to be saved. All right? That's how I used to believe it. And I don't think Clay would ever choose that song in our church. Because if that's how you look at it, it's not doctrinally correct. Revelation 13, 8. All who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, that's in the Lamb's Book of Life, since the foundation of the world in the Book of Life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. In chapter 17, verse 8 of the Book of Revelation, the beasts that you saw was not and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, before the foundation of the world. God made a choice. God made a decision. These are the people I'm going to save, and guess what? We're going to write them down in a book. There it is. It's in the book. If I had that book today, I could tell you who's going to be saved. I could tell you who's been saved, if I had that book and could read it. All right? But that's before the foundation of the world. And it's not by accident that the primary reason that we are persecuted for our faith is also the solution on how to face it. Now, hear what I'm saying. The reason we are persecuted for our faith is also the solution on how we face it. Don't forget what Jesus said here in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Now get these words. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, get that word, therefore, the world hates you. Why does the world hate Christians? Because God decided to choose us out of this world and make us a part of his kingdom. That's why we're persecuted. That's why Christians are persecuted. You know what? The world looks at you as foreigners, looks at you as aliens. And guess what? We can see even nowadays what some people think about foreigners and aliens. All right? That's why the world hates you. Because the Lord chose you. God's people are a group that are separate and distinct from the world, and therefore we are subject to its hatreds and its persecutions. So what prepares us for that? Well, it's the very same thing, because we are elect or because we are chosen. That's what prepares us. What prepares us is because God chose you. What prepares us is because God predestined you. That's what prepares us. Now, back to why is election such an encouragement? 
First of all, we're going to look at the, the source of election here. The source of election. Um, back in Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, we're chosen. Who does the choosing? Who does the choosing? God the Father. He did the choosing. You didn't choose yourself. He did the choosing. Uh, according to the foreknowledge, that word foreknowledge there, uh, we trace it back to the word prognosis. Okay? Uh, what's a prognosticator? Somebody who tells you the future. Okay? Prognosis, that word right there. According to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what's the foreknowledge of God? What is the foreknowledge of God? Well, I'm going to tell you what it's not, first of all. What it's not. It is not based on God knowing some fact or facts in the future. It's not foresight of some knowledge of future events. It's not the fact of who will believe or a decision that someone would make. Foreknowledge is not God looking into the future and seeing what decision you're going to make and based on knowing what decision you're going to make, then writing your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is not foreknowledge. Because the word foreknowledge has everything to do with a personal, relational knowledge of knowing somebody. It's not knowing about somebody. It's not knowing what someone's going to say. It's not knowing what someone's going to do. It's actually having a relationship with them, knowing them in a relationship. Uh, look at First Peter chapter one, verse twenty. First Peter chapter one, verse twenty. For he was foreknown, same exact word that we've already seen in verse two, foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Who is that talking about? Who is that? Who was he that was foreknown? Jesus. 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 So, do you think Peter's saying here, um, God looked into the future, and he saw that there was going to be a Jesus, and this Jesus was going to die on the cross, and therefore bear the sins of many. And therefore, because he saw what Jesus was going to do, then God says, this is what Jesus is going to do. No, not at all. Not at all. What, what he's saying there was, Jesus was foreknown. He had a relation. There was a relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. That relationship existed. And that relationship existed to bring about our salvation. There was no division between what Jesus was and, and said and did from God the Father. That's they right. were one. That's right. That's right. They were one. In the Old Testament, knowing someone was often used of having a sexual or 
an intimate relationship with someone. You go back to Genesis, Adam knew his wife Eve. What? Adam had a relationship with his wife Eve. It's not Adam knew what Eve was going to do in the future, but there was a relationship there. The key word is relationship. Foreknowledge, if you will, is a, is a relationship that's going to be. God told Moses he chose in the past to have a relationship with him, to know him. In Exodus thirty three seventeen, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Moses, I knew you in the past. I had already made a decision to have a relationship with you and what you would do. I got a question. Yes, Gene. Why salvation has already been established in people, do we send missionaries out? Now, what is that? Why? Why, if, if salvation has already been established yeah. in, in the people that, it's, that are saved, why do we send missionaries overseas? Why do we send missionaries? Oh, that's a good question. I didn't think of that one. <laughs> why send missionaries? <clears throat> if this has already been established. Okay. Now, if you will allow me, I'm not going to answer that right now, but I'm going to write that on my list of questions to answer next week. Okay? That's going to keep you coming back. That's what I do. All right? But good question. Very good question. Those are questions that come up in our minds when we hear this doctrine. And that's a question that can be answered because there is a reason we send missionaries. All right. About Jeremiah. What did God say? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Whoa. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So that's another old, about Israel in the Old Testament. Amos 3, 2. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Does that mean God didn't know any of the other countries? People of the earth know. He's talking about you only have I had a relationship with among all the families of the earth. It's not just God having knowledge about someone, but establishing an intimate relationship with someone. God decided in eternity past that he was going to have a saving relationship with every one of you. He determined that. Uh, the truth is also taught in the Gospels. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 through 23. And we're going to finish off with this one right here, getting here. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. I have a relationship with my own. And in Romans 8, uh, 29, for those whom he foreknew, okay, for those who he chose an eternal past to have a relationship with, he also predestined 
to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When God made the choice, God also made the plan to have that choice happen. When God decided that you would be saved, wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, God also put the plan in place to make that happen. In Romans 11.2, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge is God deciding before the foundation of the world to know someone in the sense of having an intimate, saving relationship with them, to give his redeeming love to them, and it's only by his personal choice. You may call it um, foreknowledge, you may call it forelove. God decided whom he was going to love. All right, um, I'm going to pray, and then if you have any other questions, I want to write them down for next week, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I thank you for this doctrine. I thank you for this truth. God, I thank you that it's you who made the decision to save me and to save these others here, Heavenly Father. Uh, I thank you, Heavenly Father, because on my own, I would not have done it. On my own, I would not have believed. On my own, I would not have accepted your love, Heavenly Father. So, God, I thank you that it's your plan, and to you get all the glory and all the praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.